positive feedback loop. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Positive Feedback Loop Podcast. This is your host, Ray, and joining me is Stephanie. Hello, everyone. And Luis. Hello. And this is a podcast we've, you know, introduced ourselves numerous times, but I think this will be an interesting topic. Today, we're going to talk about autonomous morality. And what does that even mean, uh, autonomous morality? Let's break it down. So you have autonomous, that's Basically, when something is, a process is happening automatically without the intervention of a human and morality. Morality has been a point of discussion for a long time in history. What is right? What is wrong as human beings? How do we select and make decisions? How do we make the right decisions? How do we make the moral decision? And with the advent of technology like artificial intelligence and um, deep learning algorithms computers are starting to make these decisions for us so you can think about autonomous vehicles making decisions on the road while we were doing some research we found something called the moral machine application it was made at MIT and it basically uh, puts you in different scenarios driving scenarios and you have to make a decision whether or not you should swerve out of the lane and potentially um, hit a few pedestrians or keep the car in motion and potentially hit other kinds of pedestrians or maybe not. So there's lots of different scenarios, different situations where different types of people in the car, old, young, male, female, dogs, cats on the road. So there's lots of different um, alternative scenarios. And it's pretty cool. The website URL is moralmachine.mit.edu. And you guys have actually tried this. What was your experience, Luis? Well, I just want to say, before we uh, take a crack at talking about what we got, I think listeners should stop for a moment to try the test themselves and see how your results compare with ours. Yeah, um, take a pause. Take a pause. Positive feedback. Loop. Do this and come back. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that test. Now let's tell you what our results were. Luis, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Uh, let's preface this by saying that all the results are going to be different because everyone got different scenarios. So it's not like we all had the same scenarios to compare against. It's just 13 randomly generated scenarios, all of them with different ethical quandaries, whether it's you know a car full of dogs versus one pedestrian or you know uh, cars versus people who uh, are jaywalking versus people who are following the law but maybe the people who are following the law they're they're there's like they're all old and the people who are jaywalking are all babies you know that sort of thing or criminals there are yeah burglars exactly right so what kind of way do you approach it i think for the most part i've kind of realized the way i kind of approach this issue was i tended to i tended to think about it from the perspective of if you were jaywalking if you were not following the rules then you took that risk yourself with the exception of like, let's say children. I tended to be very unsympathetic to people who were jaywalking because that was a risk you took. Meanwhile, I also tended to keep the car in its lane. If it was between equal numbers of people, I just told the car to keep going. Although I also at times thought, wait, but if the car swerved, maybe people would notice and they'd get out of the way. 
So I don't know. Depends on how the mechanics of that would be in the real world. But assuming that the result is equal, I'd tell the card to keep going because right. And just I, to clarify, I prefer non-intervention. At least it's not you know like a decision. Kind of like the idea. I think this all kind of hails back to the idea of if you see um, a train heading towards a bunch of people, and you can either uh, push a button and do and like move it out of the way or uh, let it go. Obviously, you'd push the button for the most part. But what if what you have to do is push a fat man in front of the car of the train, and that's what'll stop the train and save everyone, but kill the fat man, and then it becomes more tricky, right? At what point does intervention affect? your results or rather the ethical calculation you do in your head and it's difficult i don't really know if i can say with any certainty what's the right thing to do or how i'd react in a situation where this was real rather than just some imaginary quiz right and to clarify in the application itself it's kind of like a game you you have to make a selection either to swerve or to stay in your lane and there is no option of just stopping so that's it's just part of the, the scenario that you have to play out yeah and sometimes any audience who get, members who wanted to just like stop or something that's not the, an option for you and sometimes people who get injured are those in the car themselves so right. would you prefer ramming your car into a, bl- a block a roadblock versus hitting some pedestrians you know I definitely was unsympathetic to animals, which I I don't feel great about, but I think that's just where my priorities are. But, I, I mean... Well, if you are valuing an, uh, human lives over animal lives, that's different than just saying, I just want to run over animals because I feel like it. Yeah, but yeah. what about if it's four animals and one human life, right? What if it's five dogs and you're a dog person and one human life who's been, you know... Some people value all lives, all animal, meaning human and dog and cat and everything, all equally. Um, Others think that human lives are somehow uh, more valuable. And this extends also to one of the scenarios where it would ask you, would, would you value a doctor's life over a robber's life or over a homeless person's life? Uh, I got scenarios with all of those different types of people where in your heart you may believe that all human lives are equal no matter what but then when you're faced with a scenario and you have to choose between two human lives and it's one versus one what do you do interesting so what did you do Steph because I know I tended to just ignore who the people were unless they were children that was basically how I did it where I, I, I kind of see it from the perspective of like triage where it, it doesn't how you prioritize who to help shouldn't be based on their moral good. I mean, at least in my in Well, my because head. you can't judge their moral good. Yeah, a just person... because their profession may be helpful to society doesn't mean that they're necessarily in the long run going to end up being better for society. Well, I don't, you don't know, know if I, they're helpful to, to society. A doctor sure. yeah. could be a malpractice doctor. Uh, that yep. homeless person could be someone who's just a minimal living kind of person who became, you know, independently wealthy. You don't know what the or situations could be a are. Pillar of society. Uh, yeah. I was in a when I was doing jury duty this summer. I was um, talking with a so in the jury there was another lawyer who was a juror, and they were telling me about this case where 
in the neighborhood, they had a homeless man who would teach all the children chess. And he was just the most lovely person in the world. Someone sued sued him for being near the children. And the whole neighborhood came out to try to help him, eventually getting the, the suit thrown out. But... I mean, it just goes to show you don't know. And especially in these split-second decision things, I don't think it's the job of a machine to decide whether a person is more or less worthy. So I kind of brought it down to a more minimalistic, trying to eliminate those as a valid factor in my decision-making. Well, I mean, utilitarianism works there. But then if you have one human versus one human, you have to use another level of moral judgment besides a utilitarianism because if your utilitarianism is based solely on one human life versus one human life, there has to be some other measure. Otherwise, you won't make it. Yeah, there is. Coin flip. And in the (laughs) the car while you're going 70 miles an hour. Yeah, coin flip. (laughs) Yeah, dude, you you program a random random, uh, number generator into that car and see what happens. Yeah, if the car is deciding, I think that would be possible. That's true. There was actually a criteria in the moral machine application. There was um, saving more lives, so it's all about quantity. Like, is it important to save many lives or few lives? Protecting passengers over pedestrians, upholding the law. So, how much does the law account for your decision making? Meaning, if it's like a a green light, but there's a person in front of you, is it more important to follow the law or protect these lives? <laughs> Avoiding intervention, gender um, preference, male or female, is it? An animal or a human, younger, older, fit people, larger people, and then as you said with the doctor and like the um, social value preference. Well, an interference Those is the also an important criteria that was there because it's asking, do you value what fate is that you, you just continue going straight or that you decide to change the direction? For avoiding intervention? Yeah, yeah. you're right. I just wanted to address that also kind of separately that's like the main issue now with autonomous driving is should there be an intervention or should there be just follow the code kind of thing should there yeah. be a specific code to protect one of these other criteria, or is it just follow the code i don't think that's what intervention is though i think intervention is if you are going forward and if by going forward you will die and by changing your direction you will kill some other person then continuing to go and go forward is this idea that you don't believe in interference with fate and if you believe in fate and the other is i'm going to interfere with what is naturally selected for me in this scenario and i'm going to change it i'm going to disagree slightly with your example because you give two different situations one where one person dies versus well, you die versus another person dying. And that introduces another factor of how much do you value yourself over others? In this scenario, I think avoidance, uh, interference avoidance is if given two equal situations where same number of people, same exact people are going to die, whether you uh, do something or don't do something, do you still do something? Because at that point, you kind of have some responsibility for what happened, even if I mean, either way, you're going to have responsibility, whether you act or you don't act. But it feels different if you pull the lever, right? It feels different. And I think that's kind of where that's going. Right. I mean, in an autonomous vehicle, you might actually be sleeping the whole time. So if, like, 
you end up running someone over and you had no opportunities to intervene, you know, would that make you feel less guilty? I don't think, I mean, personally, I wouldn't feel guilty at all if I was sleeping in an autonomous vehicle and somebody, um, you just skip on out of there. No, well, it's singing. It's a nice little tune. (laughs) I mean, I would feel very sorrowful. I would feel bad for the situation, but you wouldn't feel guilt is what you're saying. I I think I would, you'd feel sorrow and because the guilt would have no positive impact. If I felt guilty for that, something of which I had no control over, there would be no positive impact. That's not to say I, I would definitely do everything I can to make sure that the person was okay or, you know, whatever the situation may be, I would make sure it works out for that person, but if they're injured or whatever, but you know, I wouldn't feel like it was my fault because that wouldn't, that would negatively impact me and it would have no positive impact on anybody else. So I don't see the point in that. Yeah, but guilt's in a difficult emotion. I mean, plenty of people go throughout their lives feeling a ton of guilt about things they didn't really do. That you can feel bad about things you didn't actually have an impact on and still feel guilty. Eventually, you can get through it, but you know, it still happens. At least, especially right after you murder someone, even no, if indirectly. The I, but the thing is, you didn't murder anyone. That wasn't it. Wasn't you? You just happened to be in the vehicle that murdered somebody. Yeah, but like the way the human brain works is that eventually some people will think, well, I, if I hadn't been going down this route, this person would be alive today. If I hadn't taken this trip, if I'd left earlier. That's true. Like that sort of thing tends to go through people's minds, even if honestly, at the end of the day, it was unavoidable, right? It was going to happen or it wasn't going to happen. Whatever happened, happened. You were right in your assessment of it that you shouldn't necessarily feel guilty because you didn't have a hand in it. But I'm just saying, people tend to feel real guilty. Which brings me to the question, Ray. What did you pick? Uh, I'm actually looking at my results now, and it looks like the most killed character was a little girl, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Yeah, apparently. And and I also had a preference to keep fit people alive. I was very much for letting criminals get run over and avoiding intervention actually mattered a lot for me so you were saying stephanie i prefer to just let things happen i think and not intervene if i could but if i have to intervene because i think that the what the outcome of intervening would be much better uh, i would do that and the law Actually, it mattered a lot to me in these situations. But again, this was one test with a random, randomly generated scenarios, and I don't think it wasn't enough it's... of a sample. Yeah. Like I feel like there yeah, weren't enough questions. Enough. Although I will say very clearly that I always saved the dogs before the cats, <laughs> and I uh-huh. thought that was actually okay. really interesting. I don't know if they were testing like to see if we thought certain animals were worth more than other animals, maybe. But it was my favorite question for sure because I did get an answer of there's a cat driving the car and there's a dog crossing the crosswalk. And I thought, well, obviously you saved the dog. Uh, now I'm going to make a lot of enemies uh, that are listeners. Right, you, looked cat at me, lovers. you looked at it funny where when she said there's a cat driving the car. But if it's an autonomous car, it's totally doable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. I just didn't see any animals in the cars driving. Oh, there were sometimes, least. yeah. I had a few questions. Not in the driver's seat for me, but that's funny. Well, Luis, I want to go back to a topic you introduced, which is 
and maybe it was in response to something Ray said, but the idea of guilt and misappropriated guilt or indirect versus direct guilt, this idea that we feel badly or not for things. And is it misappropriated in some way? Uh, like you said, we can feel guilty for things that aren't our faults. We cannot feel guilty for things that are our faults. Do you know who cannot feel guilty unless you program it? Cats. Is the, is the AI, right? Yeah, well, which is so the what agents I think... driving won't feel any guilt no yeah, matter that's, what. That's what I think is so interesting because when Luis first introduced this topic for the podcast, for this episode, he introduced it as autonomous morality uh, the, or the phrase. And so I thought that was really interesting because it, it actually, there's a whole religious term of autonomous morality that goes back to Immanuel Kant. And basically there are kind of these three types of morality. One is autonomous, meaning that you, you impose moral law on yourself and instead of someone else doing it for you, which would be heteronymous, which is when people impose laws on you. And then there's God, theonymous, where you say, you know, God imposes some, some law on you and you, you obey that. And there's a book by David Carlin called The Decline and Fall of the Catholic Church in America. And he talks about the, the moral philosophy of Immanuel Kant, who introduces autonomous morality. And Kant believes that autonomous morality is good and that heteronymous morality is bad because a moral code or set of values is imposed on an agency external to the individual. So when I read this, I thought, wow, this sounds like moral anarchy. <laughs> and Carlin even says, at first hearing, this sounds like a sure path to moral anarchy. So I guess I, I was, uh, my thoughts were in line with that. And whether or not you're interested in you know, Kant's philosophy, I think it's directly related to autonomous vehicles. If you believe in moral autonomy in its purest form, it means that you believe people cannot be subjugated to law. Otherwise, their moral autonomy is overridden by this need to obey the law, right? So you're thinking, okay, purest moral autonomy, no law. So in the autonomous car industry, this would be mean if you believe in autonomous morality, you believe that each manufacturer could use their own AI software, meaning that each or it could mean that each driver could cone their own values into their own car. They decide that I want a car that reflects my moral values, so it'll kill dogs over cats, whereas the, uh, the neighbor's car is going to kill cats over dogs. And so then you have the flip side of this. Let's say you think, okay, autonomous morality for, for people in their driverless cars is, or for manufacturers or whatever is a bad idea. The flip side is that you have only one law or moral code that's decided on, meaning you could either have one AI software, like a monopoly of the software that can be used for all driverless cars on the road, or you have to write every possible scenario into law that then different AI softwares would have to incorporate. So... Are you an, a fan of autonomous morality of, of these vehicles? You know, the idea that we are more responsible as individuals and we decide or the manufacturers decide or one governing law, which removes us perhaps a few degrees from the decisions the cars make. I, I think this is uh, interesting because it's kind of, we, I don't think there's many other ways to make a machine that makes decisions like this 
currently, other than via a kind of deontological method, which is to say having it follow strict moral guidelines based on these laws, right? You have to kind of code in what the machine decide, what the machine's going to decide, because it can't just pick. You could do a random picking, but that's going to be a whole mess. You're going to get into a whole bunch of trouble when the machine swerves out of the way of a pigeon and hits a bus full of children, right? So you have to kind of code in what the machine should do. And then within that you know, overview of the ontology, it's going to have to go utilitarian because it's going to have to figure out what's going to be the greatest damage versus the greatest good that it could do when making these decisions. Now, it's always possible the machine won't be able to do any of the decision-making in time uh, and will just hit whatever's in front of it. But speaking from the perspective of where we are in terms of the technology, I can't see currently anything but that system being implemented. For something more subtle, right, to go into work, something where your morality is far looser defined would have to wait until the AI is actually much more self-aware, at least in my opinion. I can't really fathom it. Ooh, we're getting into the weeds there with uh, self-aware AI. I, I like it. Let's cut for a commercial, and we'll be right back. Thank you, Piffles. Dear citizens, we interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a message from the Department of Morality. Following the last meeting of the Department of Morality, the following activities have been deemed immoral. Discussing politics in an Uber. Using the word fam. Man-spreading. Talking about your diet. Making hats out of dollar bills. Purges. Putting sweaters on pets. And owning DVDs of 90s sitcoms. If you or anyone you know have partaken in these activities, please take yourself to a moralizing center. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. All right, and welcome back. I hope you enjoy that commercial. Uh, we've been talking about artificial intelligence and autonomous morality, uh, what it means to be moral when you're a robot. Uh, these are tough questions. So we were talking about autonomous vehicles but there's other applications of this as well and i believe Luis, you mentioned you had a story or uh, an idea you had to you wanted to share yeah actually so i want to give all the props to uh radio lab another great podcast that although they try to compete with us i mean they can't keep up but <laughs> they're they're pretty great i was listening to them uh, a while ago this is a this is a, i think an episode from months ago uh, and they were talking about triage in Areas that have been devastated by hurricanes, and they have all these stories about, um, you know, the hospitals making tough decisions about how to care for people with different needs uh, when they have very limited resources. Right? Their electricity is going out. Who do you who do you get in the helicopter to get out of the hospital? Who do you get the resources to the oxygen tanks to? All this stuff. And they also talked about an experiment that was done where they had people from different ages, different walks of life, etc. It wasn't so much an experiment, more like a uh, I guess it was kind of a social experiment of a kind of sorts. I don't know exactly the details of it, but basically they posed a question to the to people, uh, which was uh, something like, "There's a disease that's ravaging the country. We can only produce so much vaccine. We need to pick 
who we're going to prioritize to receive the vaccine. We can only hit, let's say, 100,000 people. This is just an example right now. There's the population of the countries being devastated by this condition. Once the first batch of the vaccine goes out, we can start making more, but it'll be a while before everyone gets it. So who do we want to prioritize to save? And this is difficult. This is a very difficult question because there we have to start talking about, are we going to use different people's um, backgrounds as a way to decide, right? Are we going to not give, not make felons be eligible for the for the vaccine? Are we going to only allow people who are above a certain income? Are we going to allow only people below a certain age to be eligible? And this kind of goes back to the moral machine because this is all the same type of decision making, right? This is where I, that's, this is one of the things like this is why I was starting to think about this problem and where I came to the conclusion that like if I had ever have to make this sort of decision, I would try to leave out as much of a person's background and identity as I could out of the equation just because I think in a system like that, there needs to be a level of chance, but also a level of utilitarianism to make it as fair as possible. And it's very difficult to do. Because without perfect information, even if you have perfect information, it's still hard. But without perfect information, it's even harder to make such a decision. Right. And Luis, I know this is just an example you're using, especially with like healthcare triage and things that have to deal with human life and vaccines. They would probably, you can imagine them going for the older people and the younger people that might be more susceptible to this disease. So there are decision points that are made yes. using that information, that personal information. So I wouldn't go as, so far to say that let's remove the personal information. Well, um, well I, I, I guess don't count the that, demographic yeah. information yeah. is what you mean. I got you. I don't okay. count that as like, if, if it's if it's an issue of effectiveness of the, of the vaccine, then yeah, of course, you'll go for where the vaccine's going to have the most impact. But I'm thinking about just specifically from the moral standpoint of who deserves saving. If the vaccine, let's imagine, works perfectly for everyone Everyone will be equally affected. That's one thing. Additionally, how long will someone who's younger last versus someone who's older? Will someone who does who has to wait for the vaccine but is sick now live long enough to receive it if they don't get it in the first batch? If the vaccine, if the disease is equally deadly for everyone, then does that matter? Then what are we using to make the decision? Is it just that we treasure young people because we want them to have more life to live. And that comes down to the question of what is death kind of, right? Because if life, if we treasure having more years of life as opposed to, you know, dying, and we want to make sure that we're rewarding or we're not rewarding, but we're giving people a chance to live as much as possible, then yes, you should give it to the younger people. Right, because then they have more years of life ahead of them. But isn't that also unfair on the older adults or older people who may have a lot to offer society, but are generally kind of not treated properly by the system as it currently stands because we're a very young-oriented society. So how we value these things is so complicated. And the fact that we're making trying to bring this down to the level of machine code is kind of insanity. Right. No, that's absolutely true. I think it is pretty, pretty crazy. And there's lots of examples like this. We talked about healthcare. We talked about autonomous vehicles. So all these decisions, they are impacted by the type of person you are, the type of frameworks to use when you make these decisions, what kind of background you've had in the past and experiences and what you think is normal. And there's lots of different frameworks. 
So, Luis, you mentioned one of those frameworks, utilitarianism, and how, you know, many people strive to be utilitarian uh, because it can make a lot of sense. And one of the more basic manifestations of that was in the test we took. You know, in the moral machine test, one of the scenarios is, do you save five people and kill three or save three people and kill five? And that's all the information you have. It's, it's totally utilitarian based. And so, you know, I asked myself, do we make decisions in a, in a utilitarian framework? So then the question then arises, well, if autonomous vehicles were proven to save more lives, or I guess that, that if there were less deaths with driverless cars that, or with autonomous, you know, industrial machines and manufacturing plants or whatever autonomous robot or machine there is, if there are less deaths with that than there are with whatever traditional machinery, cars, et cetera, we're using, would we accept it as a society? And, you know, my first reaction was, well, of course, yes. I was reading a Washington Post article from February, and the article's author, Stephen Overly, quotes John Hansen, who's a spokesman for the Toyota Research Institute. And Hansen claims that a lot of people say, you know, if I could even say one life, it would be worth it. So any system that is one life better, meaning saves one life more than another system, should be preferential, according to our utilitarian mindset. But he says it in, in a practical manner that's not acceptable. And it's interesting to see that people don't accept driverless cars even if they are proving to be more safe because they want to see a hundred percent perfection in them before they'll accept them and it really means bottom line that these people would rather take the less safe option of traditional cars for example in the case of autonomous vehicles driving on the road they'd take that over the safer option of driverless cars only because they have personal experiences with traditional cars and so a lack of knowledge breeds fear it reminds me of Apple Pay in a lot of ways and the public response to Apple Pay. It's not a coincidence that many adults fear putting their credit cards on Apple Pay on their phones because it's the same mentality that they have toward driverless cars. So ev even though you're more likely to leave your wallet somewhere or that it gets stolen, then having your phone hacked and the person specifically getting your credit card information, you still somehow psychologically feel more secure carrying your wallet around. So why is that? Why, is, why do people irrationally feel a fear towards something that's proving more safe? Well, I mean, I think that's, I see your point, but it's a little bit different too. Obviously, there's always fear when there's something that's new or different and people have to change their ways. There's always that fear, but uh, it doesn't really... I think it is very different, though, because it doesn't have any moral issues with Apple Pay. I don't see any morality issues. Well, it's not a moral issue with Apple Pay. What, what I'm saying, though, is that utilitarianism is a moral yeah. framework. And with utilitarianism, yeah. you're saying, what are the chances of, in this scenario and this scenario, the loss that will occur? Right? When it's the loss of human life, we sure. call it morality. When it's the loss of cash and credit cards, all of a sudden it's not morality. It's just, you know, loss. It's a loss. loss. I, I understand. <laughs> I don't know uh, in, in the way people know. think about things. But both are this, 
fall under the framework of utilitarianism? Which choice do I make where I get the least amount of loss? So I'm not sure about that article you read in the Washington Post, but it's possible those people that were like totally against autonomous vehicles at the time and they might have other interests in mind. Maybe they're Uber drivers. I don't know. You know what I mean? So there could be a lot of reasons for that. But I truly do believe that majority of people would be with the, if it could save one life, let's go for it. Pool. I just. I, I don't know about that, Ray. I although I'm yeah. not sure about uh, Stephanie's points. I I will say that I can understand some of the uh, pushback to autonomous vehicles because it, there is something a little eerie about putting your hand in the lives of a machine. No, it's versus not. Think keeping about it in this. Your hand. Now, wait, wait. I agree that ultimately it kind of boils down to the same thing because a car can malfunction. Forget the car. The car. What about what about auto rails? You're, you're at an airport, and some airports have these trains that drive themselves. Every time you get into a public bus, you put the hands, maybe not into, it's not in your own hands anymore. It's in the hands of another driver. Now, this yes, driver, he has two eyeballs, two, two hands, and two legs, right, that drives your car? That's just a limited frame of... But that's a person. Like Here's the difference. That's a person. And for some reason... Like, this happens to me personally. I want to tell you something about me personally. I have a very deep well of patience when it comes to other people. When other people don't do things right, I say, well, you know what? They're humans. Mistakes happen. I, this is part of the contract, right? This is all in the contract. We agree that with humans have flaws, and this is okay. Within a certain limit. When my machines don't do what they're supposed to do, I do not have the same level of patience for them. I lose my patience with my phone much, much quicker than with someone who I am talking to. If someone who I am talking to refuses to do the thing that they're supposed to do, I'll wait. I'll think, well, maybe they're having a bad day happens, but I won't give the phone the same level of leeway. I'll just say in my head, phones are supposed to work the way that they're supposed to work because I have a contract with the phone and that contract is solid because machines work. They don't fail. That's their whole thing and they're not supposed to fail. And if they're failing, it's a bad machine, right? And so I lose my patience with it instantly. I mean, it's not like I'm going off like exploding and throwing my phone, but I lose it much quicker than if it was a person who in my head, I just think, well, you know what? Things happen today. Maybe they're having a bad day. I'll give them a pass. And I think this kind of, in a perverted way, uh, and I say this in the, like a perversion of it, uh, it kind of makes its way into autonomous vehicles because then you have this idea of putting your hands in code, putting your life in the hands of code rather than putting your life in the hands of another person. And while another person is much more likely to make a mistake than code, when code makes a mistake, it can be catastrophic instantly. Because imagine that someone writes wrong code in one line of car and that line of car gets rolled out you know throughout the entire country and all of a sudden 800,000 people are driving this car and then something happens that caught that triggers the bad code and all of a sudden 800,000 people are getting into accidents humans you can have drunk people killing 800,000 people a year Right, and it could be that the whole that all the cars go without a single accident, except for this one incident that kills eight hundred thousand. But 
we excuse that because it's incremental. It's not like as sudden. And I think there's like this idea that machines, when they go bad, when they go wrong, it's catastrophic compared to humans. I don't know. This is just my personal interpretation of it. I wonder uh, if it's also related to the fact that we don't see machines and humans as separate. It's not like humans with their errors and their mistakes and their just humanity, which is acceptable, like you said, part of the social contract. We accept that all humans have flaws. It's not like humans are over here developing themselves and then AI is having an immaculate conception of, of all of these machines. That'll make for an interesting book. It's that humans are creating those machines and humans are writing that code. So when people say, well, there are autonomous vehicles, what they see is the same possibility of fallacy and mistake and error, human error in developing whatever this is, but now taking out the human checkpoint that we used to have. And I think that's the fear in people. So psychologically, when they see a driverless car, they don't see a machine that can make faster, better choices than a human. What they see is a, as a machine that's been developed by a human may have error coded into it because of that and now doesn't even have the human there to make up for whatever mistake happens, which is why people feel better about a driverless car that may have someone sitting at the wheel just in case, but isn't necessarily having to drive, keep the, you know, the speed or the foot on the pedal or driverless technology has been around for a while. We think of cruise control is a form of this autonomy that we've experienced in vehicles for a long time now. Also cars at Disneyland, which we learned when we went to the Popnology exhibit, <laughs> it had like Ray mentioned these cars on rails that have been able to drive themselves. But I think the fear comes from experiences with cars that really can go on their own, but, but they still want a human check there. And it reminds me of a situation that happened in Boston recently where a, I think it was the green line was not stopping. It sped past a stop and didn't stop at one of the stations. And so people kind of got worried because the people on the platform thought, it wasn't an empty train, like a test train that passed by. It was a train full of people who could not get off at the stop, and I couldn't get on. So what's going on? And then the train passes another stop. And it's then that all of the passengers on the train realize they're all on the train, but nobody's driving it. Because the train has some autonomous features where it can go without somebody pressing a pedal, so to speak, without a human intervention there. But because it doesn't have a driver, it's not stopping. And so people are calling 911 from the train, trying to alert somebody to get this train stopped ex from, but with external measures before it reaches the end and everybody dies or, you know, gets injured. And so then you have, the, then you have another story that happened around the same time when Amtrak, a driver was in charge, there was a human being leading the, tr the train, and took a corner too sharply and injured a lot of people because it went off the tracks. I think this was on the way to New York. Yeah, it was a massive tr a train derailment in the, the New York, I think like half a year, a year ago, I think. It was, it was recently enough that it, it's still fresh in my memory, at least. 
But these two scenarios, I think, are an interesting contrast that reflect on people's fears. Um, one is, you know, the semi-autonomous vehicle with a human being missing, <laughs> you know, and the other is a semi-autonomous vehicle with the human present, and both had potentially, and in one case, actually catastrophic results. So the question is, can we trust either? And if it doesn't matter, do we move toward the simpler system of autonomous vehicles, or is there something else to consider? Let's say they're equal. Let's say they're completely equal. There's the same number of deaths per driverless car as there is for drivers in cars, traditional cars. Well, then isn't that a matter of, of comfort then? If they're going to be equally safe, wouldn't the more comfortable version be the one that wins out eventually? But I don't think that if they're equally safe, people will choose the driverless cars. And I think you sort of made you're that point right. too. That people are yeah, uncomfortable right. with them. I think it's just a matter of time, to be honest. I think once people get into a car, an Uber, and there's no driver, and it, it successfully takes them to their destination, they're going to want to do it again. Especially if you think about the economics of it. And, you know, you, economics really drives these kind of long-term things. Like having a person either drive the car or just sit in the car, it's going to cost a few extra dollars for the user, for the, for the passenger. Yeah, of course. I just think that the economics will push out the person, push out the driver. It'll be autonomous. I think it'll be something that the government will be involved with a lot because all our roads are not really equipped for autonomous vehicles yet. I think there'll be like dedicated lanes on highways. These experts already have been working on this for, I feel like, decades now, these these cars. So it's going to take time. But I do yeah. eventually think we'll end up with driverless cars. It's going to be a progression. It's going to be first starting out with driverless cars that have a driver in them and eventually over time when people get comfortable enough with the idea that hey maybe i can take my hands off the wheel and nothing's happened for the last you know two years no i haven't died and everything's been fine and everyone i know has been fine yeah maybe i can just hire a car that'll drive without a driver so here's a question though what if that autonomous car autonomous meaning there is no driver and it drives completely automatically what if that car hits somebody Who's getting, who's getting sued there? Whose fault is that? Is it the manufacturer? The is manufacturer, it the driver? The, the programmer who signed off on that code? Is it how how does how do we even diagnose what happened within the code or what kind of decisions were made? Especially when you come to when you talk about you know deep learning algorithms where you really can't even see the code that they're that the computers are executing. It's just a black box, basically. So you can't even make that call, and you might not even know how to fix the problem. Um, but don't we already kind of have that? Where, you know, um, accidents due to manufacturer error already happen, right? You have cars where, like, the brakes don't work and true. things like that happen. And then you have massive recalls and lawsuits, class action lawsuits. So I think it would just be an extension of that, especially if there's no human behind the wheel. Like, if there's no human behind the wheel, it's very clearly the fault of the car, Unless it was, you know, hazardous conditions, something happened uh, that was so unpredictable that even knowing, perfectly coding the car, it couldn't have been avoided. It's very unlikely that it would not fall on the manufacturer. 
or I guess I guess it could be a matter of maintenance. Like if you haven't been doing proper maintenance on the car, but even then, uh, it's unlikely unless you've done done something wrong. Like you haven't properly kept the car. So does that mean like these manufacturers need to get start getting into the insurance business because it's going to be really interesting to see how many people try to even cheat that system. If you think about it, you know, let's have someone just run in, just jump in front of an autonomous car. Ah, I got hit by a car. I need like a, a settlement now. But won't they might- have plenty of cameras? I mean, these cars have to be able to see to drive, so they'll be yeah. filming Meaning literally they can also all film. of the time. Yeah, and actually, on top that's a of good that, thing. That'll be fully transparent, and this way, you'll have actually less claims. It's actually and, a good thing. And even if they do have this, like the odd person trying to abuse the system, overall, the idea is that you'll have so much fewer levels of accidents that it won't matter. You'll overall, you'll be ha- having fewer lawsuits because. People won't get into accidents. That's just not going to be an issue. If and you wanted to get into also, the insurance business, that'll be the good time to do it because it's all going to. You're not ever going to have to pay settlements. I mean, the other it's issue with this is that, on the manufacturer side at least, that there's not that as many new cars on the road as as there are old cars. Well, I mean, depending on wh- where you draw the line between new and old, but there are a, so many cars that are that are older than 10 years old on the road that the government started doing a cash for clunkers program trying to get people to turn in their old cars because there are so many cars that are causing problems just because they're so old and so you think well we could blame the manufacturers for all these things but it's really you know you can't blame a manufacturer at at some point when the car is so old that it's really up to the driver to get rid of that car that is past its, you know, maybe cars should have an expiration date. They have more and more human error as they go along. Maybe they're not being kept up, all these things. You know, when we talk about the moral issues with AI and and cars or other types of vehicles and robots and machinery, I really think we're just replacing some moral considerations with others. You know, as we we have a lot of considerations of the morality of of not keeping your car up to date and the the problems it causes on the road because of that, and then you replace that with a car that may have different moral considerations. For me, it's it, it's it's not like it comes out in the wash, but we evolve. It's not that our morals are changing. It's that the context is changing and we're learning how to apply our moral frameworks and understanding to these new contexts. At least until AI becomes self-aware and kills us all. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And throughout this podcast, I just want to say this again. We referenced the moral machine exercise online. So it's moralmachine.mit.edu. You guys should try it. And again, it doesn't, it, the way it's going to work in real life, as we all kind of talked about, is the AI will be actually reducing many accidents that are currently happening by human users. Um, this is just, this exercise is just a way to think about the moral aspects of what we value in life and different types of life and how these decisions will be made in the future. Um, Hope that made sense. And everyone listening, love you guys. PFL Podcast, out. And as always...
Stay crazy. crazy.